0: this parable is famous and for centuries it's been called the parable of the prodigal son the son that's a great mistake to think that this is a story about one son it's a story of two sons it's a story of a younger and an older brother you are meant to compare and contrast them and if you don't compare and contrast them the way Jesus wants you to you're gonna miss the radical message of this parable and it is radical
1: This weekend on the Songtime broadcast, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we find ourselves in chapter 15, which is the central passage of Jesus' parables of the prodigal son, or as Timothy Keller likes to put it, the prodigal sons. It's really about two sons, not just one. Stay tuned for that message, but first, we're joined by Guy Waters as we talk about the important principle of the Sabbath day as it's included in the study of the Gospel of Luke. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Did you know that it's one of the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath day and to keep it holy? Uh, This is widely debated even amongst Christians today, but it's still central to our understanding of right and wrong, the Ten Commandments. And while it's not repeated in the New Testament, there are foundations for us to understand the importance of the Sabbath and why we gather together once a week to worship God with other believers. Our guest today has written a book on that very subject. It's called The Sabbath as Rest or Hope for the People of God. We're joined by the author Guy Waters. And uh, Guy, this is a subject that is uh, very difficult for a lot of our listeners to wrap their minds around because they've been hearing teaching about it from all different angles. but one of the things that we see prominent in their study of the Gospel of Luke and where we're going in the book of Acts is the idea that the Sabbath is central and a focal point of Luke's writing. Now obviously the Sabbath means the seventh day and in the the order of the Ten Commandments, that's Saturday for the uh, uh, for for most, believers that would have been Saturday in the Old Testament. Why is it then that we as Christians choose to worship on Sunday? What is the distinction made there and why do we gather on the first day of the week?
2: Great point. Absolutely yes. And a couple of observations just to stage this. One is that the creation, God says, work six days and rest the seventh. We're remembering God's work of creation. But then if you look at the 10 commandments in Deuteronomy, God says, there's something else I want you to remember. I want you to remember my work of creation, but I also want you to remember redemption, that you were slaves in Egypt, I've brought you out of bondage, I've given you an inheritance, and the Sabbath wonderfully is the experience, the refreshing experience of freedom inheritance in Christ now moving into the New Testament of course the great work of redemption to which the Exodus pointed is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when was Christ raised from the dead well the New Testament is speaks with one voice on the first day of the week so no surprise we get into Acts and we also see this in the letter Christians are gathering they're gathering for worship just as uh, israel did in synagogues week to week when did that happen on the first day of the week so the apostles are gathering christians to worship god weekly on the first day of the week now here's another connection creation and redemption but what is redemption according to the new testament it is new creation if anyone be in christ he is new creation so we are remembering not only the work of creation but the work of new creation in jesus christ that's why god moved that day from the last day of the week to the first day of the week the command stays the same one day in seven but the days changed to recognize what god has
1: done in jesus I think that's where we get a little bit of pushback from people who say, uh, well, the Sabbath is the only command not in the New Testament. Of all the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is the only one that's not repeated. I hear that time and time again. But it is implied, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And I think when you cast your net as widely as we ought to be casting your net, you will see that commandment surface in the text of scripture so paul says almost by the by on the first day of the week when you gather in first corinthians 16. i mean it's just assumed the church is gathering and gathering for what well worship on the first day of the week paul comes to troas he's in a hurry to get to jerusalem acts chapter 20 but he waits several days why would you wait several days if you're in a hurry to get to Jerusalem? Well, because it would be on the first day of the week that he gathers the church to meet. So that tells you there's something special about this day confirmed in Revelation chapter one. When does John see Jesus? He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And just that phrase, the Lord's day, he, he just drops it. It tells you there was one day that was special and set apart. What day would that have been other than the first day of the week? So what the apostles are doing by their teaching and by their practice, they're guiding the church to observe this day as reserved and set apart to God. The, the counterpart to the last day of the week under the old covenant.
1: Hmm. Now, how many of the restrictions of the Sabbath in the Old Testament do we carry over to the New Testament? Because it seems like we could fall into this trap where we're adding things that were certainly ceremonial and important in the Old Testament, but aren't necessarily the same being applied to our, our Sabbath day on the Lord's Day. Well, that's right. So, you have to, in reading the Old Testament,
2: to work through that distinction there are there are certain commands or aspects of the commandment that are moral and carry over throughout the ages and there are others that are unique to israel that that are ceremonial so for instance the uh, execution of the man who gathered sticks on the sabbath in numbers nobody's arguing that we ought to gather and fall out and execute somebody who's breaking the sabbath that's unique to israel that's something that was typological so that's a, a more obvious example but i think that is an example that you have to exercise care in just pulling something out of the old testament and saying oh we do exactly that in the new testament today i think when you step back and you look at the new testament you see really two things. God's people are devoting that day for worship and fellowship, and that means they've made the decision to set that day apart from the other six days of the week.
1: We've been talking with Guy Waters about his book. It's called The Sabbath as Rest and Hope for the People of God. It's a great resource, and you can find out more information about it by giving us a call, 508-362-7070 or head over to our website at songtime.com. So looking at the story of the Sabbath fits in perfectly with what we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke, because Luke makes this as a kind of front and center point, that he wants to reiterate that Jesus did his ministry on the Sabbath, and that he declared in chapter 6 that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, in the chapters leading up to our study today, as we're looking at Luke chapter 15 and the story of the prodigal son, There are two chapters. In chapter 13, we see Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath day. And then in chapter 14, at the very start of that, Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath before talking about various banquets. All of that is the backdrop to the story of the prodigal son, because Jesus is talking about a son who has gone away and is welcomed back and given a feast. So all of those teaching about feasts are are really leading into the story about the celebration of the son who has returned. But in that same context, we have the story of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. And why that's so important is that Jesus is declaring that he is our Sabbath. He is our rest. We cannot trust or rely in our own works and our own righteousness or our own good deeds. We must fully trust in the work of Jesus. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And that's something the Pharisees didn't look at and the Pharisees missed out on. And why Jesus says before delivering the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons, he wants us to understand that we need to have ears to hear. So listen closely today as we continue our study in Luke chapter 15, looking at the story of the lost sons. Here is Timothy Keller. This parable is famous, and for
0: centuries it's been called the parable of the prodigal son, the son. That's a great mistake to think that this is a story about one son. It's a story of two sons. It's a story of a younger and an older brother. You are meant to compare and contrast them. And if you don't compare and contrast them the way Jesus wants you to, you're going to miss the radical message of this parable. And it is radical. First of all, let's take a look at the story. The story is in two acts, actually. Act one begins with a speech. And the younger brother comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, the original hearers, when they heard this, would have been absolutely astounded. To ask for the inheritance while the father is still alive is to wish him dead. What the younger son is saying is, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want the father's things, but I don't want the father. Unheard of. The hearers had never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch respond to such an insult like this. So the son goes off. And he squanders everything he has. And when he's literally down in the mud, literally down in the pigsty, he realizes how stupid he's been. And he comes up with a plan. And his plan is, I will go back and say, Father, I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. The rabbis taught that if you had violated the community mores, the only way back into the community was not just an apology, but you had to make restitution. So he comes back. And the father sees him far off and he runs. Middle Eastern patriarchs did not run, but this one does. He runs to his son and kisses him. And the son tries to roll out his restitution plan. You can imagine he gets out a PowerPoint and he says, Dad, I've got to, you know, he, he, starts his, he starts to roll out his compensation plan. father won't even hear it because he says, get the best robe. The best robe would be the father's robe. And this is what he's saying. I'm not going to wait for you. To clean up. I'm not even going to wait for you to take a bath. I'm not certainly going to wait for you to prove yourself. He says to his servants, cover my son's nakedness and rags with the robe of my office and honor, and we are going to feast. You're not going to earn your way back into the family. I'm bringing you back. When the elder brother hears about it, he's furious. And as you see here, the older brother is saying, how dare you use our wealth like this? I have obeyed you. I should have some say in this. In other words, I have some right over your things. How dare you do this? And he insults the father. He publicly humiliates his father by not going into the greatest feast his father's ever thrown. But what does the father do? He responds with a very tender word. He says, my child, I still want you in the feast. And what is Jesus trying to get across? First of all, most briefly, he redefines God. There's an awful lot who really struggle with this idea that God is a father. But here he defines what he means as father. Jesus Christ gives us a father unlike any father of that time. His emotional abandon, his generosity, his willingness to receive the agony of rejected love. No one's ever described God in those ways. He redefines God. Secondly, he redefines sin. The brilliance of the rhetoric of Jesus here is that in the first act, Jesus gives us a picture of sin That is very traditional. Any Pharisee, any religious person, anybody, you could look at that and say, yeah, that's sin. But then in the second act, he turns the table. There are two sons. One is very, very good, one is very, very bad, and they're both alienated from the father's heart. Each one of them wanted the father's things, but not the father. Each one of them, listen carefully, used the father to get what they really loved, the status, the wealth. But one of them did it by being very, very good, and one of them did it by being very, very bad. They're both lost. You see why elder brother lostness and younger brother lostness are both terrible. Younger brother lostness, with its self-indulgence and its addiction, it brings a lot of misery into the world. But elder brother lostness, you can see it. Look at his anger. He's always angry because he's lived such a good life that God, the Father, owes him to do things his way. Of course, if you love the Father, you're going to obey him. But why? The elder brother doesn't obey out of love. The elder brother obeys to get stuff. How can motivation be completely changed around? Last point. Jesus also in here redefines salvation. He doesn't just redefine God. He doesn't just redefine sin. He redefines salvation. So how can we be saved? Jesus says we need three things. Number one, we need the initiating love of the father. Do you notice that the father goes out to both sons in order to bring them in? He goes out to both sons. Secondly, besides initiating love of of the father, you need to learn how to repent for something besides sins. See, the younger brother comes back and he's got a lot of sins to repent of. And you and I, almost everybody in the world says, oh, that's what you do. That's how you get right with God. You repent of your list. But you see how radical this parable is? The elder brother is lost, but he's got nothing on his list. He says, I've always obeyed you when Pharisees sin and they do. Sometimes they feel terrible about their sins, but when they're done repenting, they're still Pharisees. The difference between a Christian and a moralist is this Christians also learn to repent for the reasons you did right. They recognize that the reason for even the right things that they do is self-justification and a desire to control God and others. When you begin to see the desire to be your own savior and Lord, not only under the bad things you've done, but also under the good things that changes everything. So first, you need the initiating love of God. Secondly, you need to learn how to repent for something besides sins. And thirdly, you need to be melted and moved by what it costs to bring you home. At the very end, the last verse, when the father says everything I have is yours, that's literally true. Why? Because the younger brother had liquidated and now had spent every bit of his inheritance and now every single thing that the father had belonged to the elder brother. Every robe, every ring, every fatted calf belonged to the elder brother. The younger brother could only be brought back into the family at the enormous cost and and expense to the elder brother. It's not free. It's not simple to be saved. Somebody has to pay. The elder brother has to pay, and he's furious about it. Now, why does Jesus put in such... A nasty elder brother, because he's showing the Pharisees what they look like. But what would a true elder brother have done? A true elder brother would have seen the agony of the father and said, Father, I'm going to go out and look for my brother. And if he has ruined himself and he's squandered all of his inheritance, I'll bring him home, even at my own expense. That would have been a true elder brother. Poor kid. He doesn't have a true elder brother, but we do. Jesus Christ gives us a bad elder brother, so we'll long for the right one. We don't just need an elder brother to go out into the next town to find us. We need someone to come from heaven to earth. We don't need an elder brother who brings us into God's family just at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in a robe of honor that we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus called my God, my God. The only time he never called him father, because at that moment he was not being treated as a son. So you and I could be there. He paid the debt that deep down we all know we owe, and because everything he had, he had everything the Father had, but he shares it with us and he brings us home at enormous expense to himself. And when you see that, to the degree you see that, it will change the absolute motivation, your whole approach toward God. And you won't be into self-discovery or moral conformity, you'll be a Christian.
1: There is nothing more devastating and heartbreaking over such an extended period of time than for a parent or a grandparent to have a child or a grandchild who has walked away from the faith. I know I've seen this, I've dealt with this with so many of you, our listeners, whether you write in or call in or have met us at a conference or visited a church, Um, I have heard your stories and it breaks my heart every single time. But we often focus in on the the son who is squandered and walked away and rebelled, the one who went away, when really the story is dealing with the lost son who remained. You know, it's very easy for us to see and rejoice with the son who returned because that's so much at the heart of our love for God, that he would save sinners, that he would embrace those who have walked away. And for any of you who've dealt with a prodigal in your life, let me just tell you what what I often tell many parents and and the people that I interact with, that that God loves your prodigal more than you love your prodigal. I know that's hard to believe. It's almost impossible to wrap your mind around it, but it is crucial and theologically accurate to accept the fact that God truly does love your children more than you love your children. And ultimately, what we have to do is entrust them into his care, because just like uh, the, the story of the Pharisees, we are prone to the sin of trying to do it all on our own. See, so this is really a story about the son who remained, pointing out the Pharisees and their, their self-righteousness, their dependence and their reliance on their own works and sometimes we do the same with the, the prodigals in our lives. We want to bring them back. We want to pull them back into the fold. We want to beat them over the head with some common sense and, and show them the light of day. But we can't do that. That is not something that God has given us the power to do. Instead, he has called us to be faithful, to set an example to articulate the gospel and also to entrust them in the care of the one who loves them more than we love them. That is hard to do, but it is at the core of Jesus' messaging, especially here the story of the two sons, the one who remained, who felt like he deserved a certain level of of response from his father because of all of his good works. And what he missed was the joy and the love and the embrace of his father which is what you need and what your children need as well. Let's be faithful to articulate the gospel on a daily basis. Let's be faithful to hold ourselves accountable to the gospel and to live as people who are marked by grace, not by our own righteousness, but who bear the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And in so doing, may we be witnesses even to those prodigals who have rejected the love of God, to show them what it truly looks like to have complete and utter surrender, self-denial, and taking up our cross daily in following Jesus. If we've been able to encourage you today, I hope that you'll let us know. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or you can give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com, or you can look us up on social media. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime and uh, the many who support this ministry, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted.